Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan and today on The Detail, the pandemic has been a massive disruption for the world of sport. Revenues dried up overnight, crowds were barred from going to stadiums, it went from being one of the most dynamic modes of modern entertainment to a forbidden, nice to have in the blink of an eye. And yet over the past 12 months, administrators around the world jumped blindfolded through flaming hoops to bring it back. The NBA created a locked down fantasy bubble in Disneyland. The European Football Championship somehow managed to pull together a continent-wide tournament. The Olympics were held a year late in this bizarre, surreal pandemic haze. And in spite of all this uncertainty, the majesty and the ecstasy of sport has shone through. Even just from New Zealand's point of view, we've had moments of glory. The ICC World Test Championship winners, New Zealand. Moments of heartbreak. They'll put it into touch and fitting that James Lowe, who had the first say, has the last say. Famous victory again, brilliant Ireland. And stories have emerged which should really make us reflect on what's important in life. Cycling New Zealand says it's deeply saddened by the death of Rio Olympic cyclist Olivia Podmore. From my perspective with Osaka, ultimately she probably has to try and find a way to be able to get to a situation where she is at least comfortable facing some, a level of scrutiny. So today, for the final podcast of the year, I'm sitting down with RNZ sports reporter Clay Wilson to discuss 2021 in sport. Well, um, let's begin, not quite at the beginning, but, you know, pretty close at the beginning. Probably the first massive sports story of the year, certainly the biggest uh, for New Zealand locally, which was the America's Cup. 2021 in Auckland, the America's Cup remains New Zealand's Cup. Peter, just hold up. One more time, the America's Cup altogether remains New Zealand's Cup. America's Cup year is always interesting, isn't it, Clay? I, I mean, are you into sailing? This is something that excited you at the beginning? Well, I guess the best answer to this for me is, I mean, I'm into m- most sports, I guess, which fits with my uh, my job. But um, I'm not a sailor per se, um, but I always watch the America's Cup. I love the sailing at the Olympics. I'm I'm not really a fan, as a lot of people aren't, of the politics, the off-field skullduggery that comes with the America's Cup. I mean, I think it's part of it. I sort of am neither here nor there, but um, certainly the on-water part of it I think is fascinating, especially with the technology that comes with the America's Cup and the constant developments along those lines. Um, and I've been fascinated with the America's Cup. I think it's probably one of my earliest sporting memories is the 1995 Cup when Sir Peter Blake and um, Black Magic won the Cup in San Diego. Not since Australia first won the America's Cup in 1983 has a challenger won sport's oldest prize. And like Australia, the Kiwis were in the mood to celebrate. So uh, I guess with that, there's some sort of historical significance for me, and it takes, you know, I, I guess, a nostalgic element. Um, but certainly from the, the on-water side of things, it's something that um, I always watch, regardless of all the drama off the water. It definitely had that element of not maybe the whole world, but a lot of the eyes of the world, especially sports fans, were on New Zealand and I guess like a heightened awareness of that. It was, I guess, great that we could have that, but also kind of bizarre in a way that we were the centre of that attention. 
and also I think what came with that for me anyway was the lack of overseas visitors here for it, which I think is a huge part of an event like the America's Cup. It's such an international kind of event and, you know, you get all the billionaires and multimillionaires that sail around the world to go and see it. But um, certainly from, like, the focus on New Zealand, it really was one of the first major events that took place and there were a lot of eyes on New Zealand for that. I mean, I think the broadcast numbers back that up. So, yeah, I think I'd agree with you on that. And there's been the obligatory post-regatta drama with where the next America's Cup's going to be held. The door may still be ajar for Auckland to host the America's Cup in 2024. A decision on a host city was due to be announced today. Instead, Team New Zealand says they'll need more time to assess three international venue proposals, as well as a last-minute Auckland bid. Has there been any big developments? Are we any closer to knowing where the, the next America's Cup's going to be, or is this one just going to go and go and go? Well, like all of them, I think it's going to go and go. It's how long is a piece of string? I mean, the deadline to announce the host is the 31st of March, which has been extended already. I think it was originally September this year. Where it stands at the moment is it looks very unlikely that it's going to stay in Auckland, which is a shame from a personal perspective. Uh, that you, It's something that, despite all the, the sort of debate it tends to cause here in New Zealand, I think it's something that can unite Kiwis at the same time as well. And a lot of people are interested in it for good or for bad, which I think is good for sport. Let's move on to like a real sport and talk a little bit of cricket, little dig there, which is, of course, one of my favourite subjects. <laughs> and it's fair to say, Clay, it was it was a hell of a year for cricket. The centrepiece, probably New Zealand becoming, or New Zealand being acknowledged anyway, as the greatest test cricket team in the world. Whips that one away and how appropriate that Ross Taylor and Kane Williamson are there for this moment, for this team. It's a story that's akin to David versus Goliath. Congratulations to New Zealand, and thanks to India for being such a big part of a great test. The ICC World Test Championship winners, New Zealand. Yeah, wasn't it spectacular? I don't think there's any probably about it. I mean, to win your first world title and win it in the form of the game that among cricket followers anyway, is absolutely regarded as the pinnacle of the game. And amongst the players, I can't remember a New Zealand cricketer I've spoken to who won't tell you that Test cricket is the the pinnacle of the game. So for the first world title after those near misses, 2015-2019, which we don't want to talk about too much, but um, yeah, it was just a spectacular result. And I guess an element of destiny when I think back to that is is how it felt afterwards, especially the way the game finished, but also just the historical significance of 2015 and 2019, but the momentum the team had been building. There was this element of, of destiny when Ross Taylor flicked that ball away and he was standing in the middle with Kane Williamson and just that iconic image, I'm sure you know the one I'm referring to, of the sort of walking arm in arm off the field with these huge grins, these two great New Zealand players. Listeners, I cried. I cried tears of joy. Man, what a special moment. I, I lost a, a lot of sleep that week. Of course, the game went for six days because of all the rain and everything else, but uh, absolutely worth it. Man, yeah. Clay, you and I are similar ages, and you, might, you, you, you would have heard this if you'd listened to some of the cricket podcasts that I did. You know, whenever I'm doing a podcast about cricket, I can't help but mention my sort of childlike joy at how good New Zealand is at cricket because we grew up in the dark ages, didn't we, Clay? We grew up when the black caps were rubbish, 
we're conditioned to these sort of rock bottom expectations. And so seeing the success of this team and the likability of them as well is both like wonderful, but also kind of, it's, it's, it's confusing to me. It's still confusing to me. I'll never get used to it, but it's still wonderful. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're right. I think there's two elements to it. And you mentioned both of them there. The history of the Black Caps, um, as you and I know it, and people even more senior than us know it, is not of one to get a lot of hope or to be used to having success. So to be in this position, even after what is a good four or five years of sustained success, is still quite a strange position. But that history, coupled with, like you say, the likability of the team, and from a media lens, you know, we get to deal with these guys on a more personal basis. And I can genuinely say they're some of the nicest people to deal with from a sports perspective, from a journalist's perspective. And so when you're watching as a sports lover, as a course of a fan of New Zealand sport of the Black Caps, you can't help but get swept up in it. We also had the T20 World Cup. We reached the final of that, uh, which was cool, you know, and it was fun. I kind of like getting up in the middle of the night to watch sports events. I don't know about you. Yeah, but I love it. I have to say, I, I found the T20 World Cup less enthralling we did lose, so that's always like slightly <laughs> debuzz. But <laughs> I don't know. It, it just T Twenty. It just like you said before, Test cricket is just a different level, isn't it? We took some pleasure, didn't we, as Black Cap fans, after that T Twenty final, basically saying, "Ah, oh, yeah, we lost, disappointing, but you know, we're still the World Test champions." <laughs> Indeed, we'll take we'll take what we've got. Um, <laughs> moving on, the biggest sporting event of twenty twenty one, of course, was the twenty twenty Olympics. That sentence in and of itself is kind of weird, but hey, you know, we all bought into it. You went to the Olympics. How did they? I mean, what was it like? Uh, yeah, different, I guess. I've never been to an Olympics. I mean, of course, I've watched many on television over the years. Uh, so I guess in that sense, I didn't go with any expectations other than what I'd known on television and and known about the Olympics and what it was. But I also went knowing, of course, that it wasn't going to be the same. I think what I took away was I enjoyed it perhaps more than I expected to. I, I sort of tried to go with um, lesser expectations because it was so uncertain how it was going to be what it was going to be like without the fans and that was the biggest thing the sport for me was still captivating like what sitting at the rowing venue uh, the canoeing venue watching the success the Kiwis had there which I think is a great example of something that a lot of people back here will relate to from watching it on TV that was still just as thrilling the essence of the event itself definitely wasn't what it could have been I mean I can imagine what it would have been like to have fans there and, and, and not having, I guess it just goes to show what a big part of sport fans are. Not the sport on the court or on the field or on the water, but as part of an event, what 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 the what fans and what supporters add to an event. Pretty good Olympics to go to from a New Zealand point of view, considering I think I'm right in saying this was our most successful Olympics ever, wasn't it? Yep, 20 medals, 7 gold, uh, 6 silver I think, and 6... Bronze, if my maths are right. Clay's maths are not right there. It was seven gold, six silver, seven bronze. But we'll let him off this time. Pretty spectacular, definitely from a New Zealand perspective. I mentioned already the, the on-water stuff. I guess that's where we excel, isn't it? A medal here. That would make Carrington the best. And she comes to the line. She is New Zealand's most successful Olympian of all time. Lisa. 
Alyssa Carrington. Great Britain try to hold on. It's looking like New Zealand. It really is. And their third gold medal in the rowing. First for the men here at Tokyo 2020. It's the Kiwis coming up to the line. Emma Twig, Imperius out in front. Victoria Thornley closing on Lobnick. It's going to be Emma Twig here coming up to the line after those pair of fourth place finishes. The fabulous Fern from New Zealand wins the gold. And I got to witness a fair few of those medals. Also, I think a lot of the moments from a New Zealand perspective were not gold medals as well. I think it's the surprise bronzes and silvers that sometimes stick with people. Um, I'm sure you've got your own. But, you know, the ones that stand out to me were Hayden Wild. And what about that Hayden Wild, the bronze? Pretty heavy, and uh, it's good to get a medal back in triathlon with uh, the men's. Uh, a lot of inspiration from my coaches. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was definitely for my, uh, uh, for my family and, uh, yeah, for my dad as well. He passed away like 12 years ago, so he never got to see me race. So. <laughs> Um, Dylan Schmidt and Trampoline, the tennis doubles players. So, yeah, a mix of those really special golden moments. Um, Lisa Carrington, well, I haven't even mentioned her yet. Um, just spectacular, massive admiration for the, for those kind of people. Outside of the Olympics themselves, there were some darker stories which came to light this year possibly the most notable of these being the case of, of Olivia Podmore. Cycling New Zealand says it's deeply saddened by the death of Rio Olympic cyclist Olivia Podmore and denies it failed her. Which raised some really interesting questions, Clay, about, uh, you know, athlete well-being and the duty of care administrators and coaches have to athletes and these conversations are important and um, and will continue, I suppose, from here. Yeah, I remember you mentioned Olivia Podmore and, of course, that tragic death. That happened in MIQ, and we were in MIQ at the same time as the New Zealand athletes, and I can't imagine what it was like for some of those athletes who knew her or were close to her to be stuck in MIQ while that was happening. I think this story, especially here in New Zealand, has been churning away for some time now. I mean, cycling, of course, was one of the first stories around this that we heard emerge um, with the Anthony Peden situation and the big investigation. Um, and then we had, you know, the Black Sticks women, uh, the football ferns. Most recently, we've had gymnastics. So this has this conversation around the balance between high performance and winning and athlete welfare and how much, I guess, power and how much care is being given to the athletes certainly has been churning away. But I guess the Olivia Podmore situation goes to show that there's still some some way to go, I think, with it. And it's interesting. It's one of those things where the balance has probably been very much with the organisations, with the coaches, with the not with the athletes, essentially. Um, and now we're starting it to see, see, see it swing back. And I think it probably what will happen is it's going to swing. You know, you do hear some people saying it's swinging too far the other way now, that if you want to win in, in high performance, there is a certain element of, you know, things are going, there's going to be difficult conversations, things are going to be said, you know, certain things need to be done. Where does it find its natural place where athletes are treated well, but also they're driven, they're pushed, and they get the success? So it's really interesting to me in that way, where, where's the natural place for this? And there probably really isn't a, a 100% fit, but I think we're going to see it continue 
develop. And the Olivia Podmore situation has certainly highlighted that there's some way to go with finding that out and making sure that athletes are, I guess, being treated appropriately in these environments that we have, not just in New Zealand, but I guess around the world, because it's not an isolated situation to New Zealand, is it? No. Well, I mean, that that sort of neatly segues us into another uh, interesting sports story of this year involving the tennis player Naomi Osaka. She had an interesting year. She started with a hiss and a roar, winning the Australian Open, and then she capitulated at the, at the French Open and uh, refused to appear at the press conference afterwards. The biggest story in tennis has boiled over. Naomi Osaka just announced that she has withdrawn from Roland Garros this year. After she was fined and threatened with disqualification for refusing to take part in a press conference at the weekend. And this ignited a big and I found fascinating conversation about, I guess it was about how sports media treats athletes and the the effect on athletes' mental health that perceived hostile questioning can have on on athletes. I mean, I have complicated feelings on on this one. I'm I'm fascinated to hear what you thought of of all this. Yeah, I think I'm in a similar position and like full disclosure, of course, I'm a sports journalist. I work on one side of this debate <laughs> and certainly in the industry. So, in some ways your your thoughts around it, your ideas around it are shaped by being on one side of the debate. But I, I certainly have tried hard to put myself on the other side of it on the athlete side of it and the Naomi Osaka side of it. And I think the situation, the French Open situation, probably wasn't handled very well by anyone um, on both sides. I think the way it was addressed, probably that's what created it. That's what made it blow up, essentially. Um, but perhaps that wasn't such a bad thing. I mean, I think the, the important thing probably is that the conversation has started. How do athletes and the media interact? Um, should we have these post-match interactions? And I, I really saw, like, from colleagues and other people in the in, in the industry, from a journalist side of it, both sides, like, are really even split. Like, you know, there needs to be accountability and these athletes mm-hmm. get paid a lot of money and, you know, it's part of the job that you have to answer hard questions sometimes. Uh, but on the other side of it, being like, well, is it really worth it? Do we really get that much out of it? Um, I think probably... The, there's a better way for it to be run, but I, don't, I wouldn't want to take it away completely and move into a. I know, um, you know, a lot of athletes have their own YouTube channels. They have their social media, of course, of ways of getting things across. And I think the Naomi Osaka thing, I'm sure you've seen, sort of fits into that mould where she's got a lot of her own mm. outlets for her views and that kind of thing. Um, so where do the independent media fit in? I suppose I do. I can see how an athlete would be like, I don't need this. I don't, I don't need to. I've just played a game of tennis. I lost. I'm pissed off. I don't want to go and get grilled by a bunch of journalists who've who've never played tennis to a high level before for an hour and a half. I'm just going to go home. I'll post a video on my Instagram and, and have some dinner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they're great questions to ask um, because I think even you know myself, sometimes you find yourself falling into that trap of, the day-to-day run of things that you can get caught up in just going to the to the press conference or the the post-game press conference and you know it's part of the part of that sort of general data and is, is it really serving anyone and it's important to to be reminded of that and say well hey what's the, the best here I think probably in terms of 
athletes having their own outlets, social media or Twitter or YouTube or whatever it is, and saying, well, do we need to do these full stop? It depends what the people, what the public want, right? Are they, do they place value on on these athletes being independently questioned and or do they just trust athletes and they just want to hear from the athletes they don't they don't really uh they're not bothered by the athletes really being questioned and 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 asked questions that perhaps they might not answer if they're just doing something for themselves so uh i think we're still a long long way off probably finding uh where it's going to end up but um the naomi osaka thing is certainly like wow it really opened up a whole a whole can of worms we were going to talk about football but let's not because arsenal still isn't doing very well my beloved arsenal <laughs> and therefore football doesn't exist at the moment so let's move on uh let's finish up with rugby and uh oh. <laughs> is that a question <laughs> i clay i'm so bored by rugby these days my favourite rugby moment of the year was when Ireland beat the All Blacks. Does that make me a bad New Zealander? No, I don't think it does. I think it depends how you frame it. We've been so used to seeing the All Blacks do well that I would imagine for quite a few people that it's not such a bad thing. I mean, I don't know what perspective you're coming from, but uh, for me, that type of thinking, I certainly relate to it. But from a perspective of uh, the All Blacks are, gonna, are, are really being challenged now okay they're no longer this dominant force Mm. and you know part of what makes sport interesting is not knowing what's going to happen and with the all blacks we've become so used to just knowing that 95 percent of the time they're going to win the black ferns also um had a bit of a fall from grace well i suppose it was a mixed year for the black ferns really wasn't it because I, i mean they had that magnificent gold medal at tokyo uh which was absolutely sensational to see but in the 15s, uh, there has been a, well, I guess, again, a levelling of the playing field, which is maybe painful in the short term to see this dominant team get beaten, get taken to the cleaners, really. So New Zealand get the final say in the Test match, but it has been utter domination from England once again. And now France can celebrate a richly deserved series win. Um, but reflects the the sort of rising tides of of women's rugby around the world. Yeah, I think it's that, coupled with the fact that the Black Ferns hadn't played for so long. Um, They'd lost quite a few players, brought in a number of young players who had no experience or very little experience playing international rugby. So as well as the opposition raising their game, and I think the likes of England and France have always been there or thereabouts with the Black Ferns over the last one or two decades, but certainly the level that they've come to and the fact that they've had recent a lot of recent match play and the Black Ferns hadn't um, is sort of the end result of what we saw on that recent tour. Um, the thing about the Black Ferns situation is the All Blacks don't have a World Cup next year at home. The Black Ferns do, and of course they want to be successful. Uh, New Zealand rugby fans want to see them successful see them be successful here in New Zealand at a home World Cup. And whether they will be or not is now a hugely open question. Um, there's a lot of work to do, certainly between now and then. Um, and if they do pull it off, well, that's going to be extra special. And I guess that's what it's the same with the All Blacks. Adversity, uh, going through disappointment, makes the success extra extra sweet. It makes it more meaningful. And that's we talked about this with the Black Caps. You know, I don't think we want to see it drag on for too long. But, um, yeah, 
Yeah, I was going to say, I wouldn't wish the late 90s Black Caps period on all, on any... <laughs> I don't think we want to go that far. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I think I think the thing for me, the takeaway, is it just makes it more interesting now for the All Blacks and for the Black Ferns. It's like, I'm going to go and go into next season when those teams play, and I'm going to be like, wow, let's see what they've done. Let's see where they're at. There are, of course plenty of big sports stories we didn't have the time to get to in this episode. The mysterious case of Peng Shui, for example, Laurel Hubbard's journey to Tokyo, Carl Heyman and brain injuries in rugby, and sexism in sports uniforms, among others. Thankfully, we produced individual episodes on all those issues and more, which you can find in the details back catalogue. That's it for today, and for the year, actually. We're off for summer and we'll be back with our first episode of 2022 on January the 31st. Thanks for listening. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform and if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell and thanks to RNZ's Clay Wilson. Matewa.